I don't know if you were listening, but if you were listening, what in the world? So many scholars and pastors from the beginning of church history right up until now have offered so many different kinds of interpretations and angles on this particular parable. In fact, the only thing that many modern scholars can agree on about this parable is that it is impossible to determine its exact meaning with any real accuracy. Almost every commentary I read said something like this. Of all the parables of Jesus, this is without a doubt the hardest to interpret. In 1864, Richard Trench complained of the manifold and curious interpretations of this parable, stating that very many interpreters have overrun their game, something I will quite certainly do today. Fair warning. Parable extraordinaire Clyde Snodgrass, what a name, has written that it is so notoriously difficult that hardly anyone suspects this could actually come from the early church. Though Robert Francis Capone has argued that if it didn't come from Jesus, who did it come from? Who in the world would it have come from and why in the world would it be in here? And commentator Richard Vinson recently wrote that it is often regarded as the most puzzling of all parables within the synoptic gospels. Oh boy, what's a guy to do? Well, the temptation with things like this is usually to take the edge off, and I'm sure somehow I will do that today, and I suppose to some degree that's what we all expect and even want. Don't we often take the hard parts of the Bible and the hard sayings of Jesus and try to smooth the edges off a bit when we're applying them to our own lives? Mark Twain once famously said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the ones I do understand. And I think we can all agree with that. We're really good at retrofitting the words of Jesus into a mold that we can comfortably hold. Like when he said that thing about selling all your possessions to the poor, or when he said that thing about forgiving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, or when he said about that thing about if somebody offends you, you should forgive them 70 times 7. Yeah, we understand what he's saying there, but we'd rather not follow him all the way on those things. Tony Campolo, a retired sociology professor at Eastern University, once recalled a day when a father brought his college graduate son into his office and started blaming Campolo for his son's misuse of his college degree. That his son was now working with the poor and, and not making a decent living instead of doing what any other self-respecting middle-class American kid should do. The father declared to him in that moment, don't get me wrong, I'm okay with Christianity up to a point. We all have our point, don't we? That point at which we won't go with Jesus. And that might be true with this parable as well. But before we get to the hard point, just understanding the point of it is hard, period. 
If you've ever looked at this or studied this before, you know I'm not going to give you all the options. Probably only one angle, and that's usually true, by the way. So Lee, please let this preaching prompt you to do your own personal pondering. How's that for alliteration? So let's review. Let's come back and review. The parable is sometimes called the parable of the dishonest or the unjust or perhaps more aptly the shrewd manager. The word manager here is a word that means steward, so we might want to start with what a steward is and what a steward does. And in this context, the rich landowner, or rich landowners like this, would often employ stewards over their property who would be given agency or authority to rent their property or liquidate assets or make loans in the name of the master. And it's important to know the definition of the word agency here because it means that the steward has power not only to make decisions on behalf of the landowner, but makes these decisions as if the manager had done it themselves. So that's the nature of the person in this story. The steward is handling the accounts and the assets of the landowner as if he is the landowner. And he's doing all this when someone comes to him and says to the landowner that the steward had been squandering his property. A couple of things here too. First, the word squandering is the same word used to describe what the prodigal son was doing with his father's inheritance in the previous and more famous parable. We'll get to that later in the series, but for now it's important that you know there is a connection between that parable and this one. Both were charged with committing an offense against someone in authority over them. Both were faced with imminent threat against their lives and livelihood because of their decisions, and both were met with surprising, unexpected mercy. There's a connection between these two parables. Secondly, we're never told whether the steward was actually squandering the master's property in the beginning, only that he was accused. The word accused can also be translated slandered. So perhaps... Perhaps someone was merely trying to slander him, to smear him, to end his reputation. This is an honor-shame culture. So the most valuable thing is your reputation, whether you have honor or whether you have shame. So maybe in the midst of this, in the face of these consequences, he just had to think fast. It could be that in the beginning he wasn't acting dishonestly at all, but like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption was a character who was wrongly accused, who then chose to shrewdly bend the rules in order to save himself. We we don't know, actually, but it's possible. And regardless of how he got here, he was in trouble. His rich master felt there was enough reason to believe that the accusations against him were true, and so he was fired. He was fired and, and sent word to do that which put his life in immediate risk and put him in immediate distress. And some of you can empathize with this situation. Some of you this morning have been faced with one reason or another with job loss and found yourself wondering in the face of that what you're going to do now. And you may have even been wondering if you 
had people dependent on you, what you're going to do for them and how they're going to make it now. We don't know if this steward was married. We don't know if this steward had children or grandchildren who depended upon him. Heck, if he had been misusing the funds, we don't even know why. Perhaps squandering meant he was taking a little extra cut of money under the table from the loans in order to pay for his child's surgery. I'm not saying that that justifies any kind of dishonest activity, that that should give anyone a free pass, but I am saying that there may have been a price for this man's integrity that we and possibly Jesus could empathize with. Maybe his rich master like Scrooge wasn't quite at the place to offer Cratchit what he needed to help Tiny Tim, but unlike Cratchit, this man was ready to do whatever was necessary to save his son. I know I'm overrunning my game a bit here, but you get the idea. The idea is that we're dealing with real, complex human beings here. And part of the point is that Jesus isn't afraid to deal with real, complex human beings. Some have argued over the years that Jesus would never have actually used a story like this with a character like this to make a positive point. And some have been offended that it's even in here. It's disturbing, they say, that Jesus could find anything commendable in a person who acted so dishonestly. That's true. It is disturbing, but I might also say it, it's relieving. Because aren't we all a mixed bag? Aren't we all full of both commendable and less than commendable qualities? Isn't there a little bit of a scoundrel in each and every single one of us? And in light of that, aren't we all at least a little bit grateful of God's grace to us that it also extends through us as well? Yeah, I, I actually think that's part of the point we're supposed to hold on to and celebrate today. Jesus commends this guy with a couple of lines that are pretty disorienting. I don't know if you were listening, but they're pretty disorienting. Remember what happened. The steward is under the gun because he's lost his job. He's wondering now how he's going to make it because his reputation is going to be ruined so he won't get hired by anyone else to do anything that he wants to do. Again, he may end up, as he said, digging ditches, which, which doesn't seem like something he can physically bear. Or he may end up begging for his food, which is also something he'd like to enjoy. So to save himself, he acts quickly, taking a well-calculated risk. Before word can get to the village that he's lost his job and has no actual agency anymore, he goes to those who owe money and makes a deal, slashing huge amounts off their debt and settling their account. And by doing this, he believes he'll gain favor with the people who may now show him hospitality after he loses his job. And he also seems to know that by doing this, he might also save his job. How? Not because he settled the accounts. This is costing the landowner massive amounts of money. But perhaps more likely by putting the landowner in a kind of bind. Remember, 
honor-shame culture. In the minds of the debtors, the steward is acting on behalf of the landowner, so they will love the landowner for what he's doing, right? They're excited about the landowner. They're happy with the landowner. So will he now, in the midst of all of the praise they're heaping on him, go to them and say, oh, by the way, I didn't really do that. You still owe me some money, perhaps now inciting a rebellion against him? Or will he take credit and remain the most popular guy in town? The steward's risky bet paid off. You sly little devil, the landowner said. You pulled a fast one on me. And Jesus concludes here saying that the landowner commended the dishonest steward, and that is in the text. That's what he calls him. The dishonest steward. Because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus offers these disorienting words. Did you hear them? Listen up. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. And I tell you, this is Jesus talking here, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. What? In the world, it's disturbing. And it's disorienting like so many of Jesus' teachings actually are if we give them enough air to breathe in our lives. And since centuries of scholars can't seem to bring this to some sort of resolve, I'm actually not going to try to either. But instead, I'm going to leave you to wrestle with it this week. Give it some air time in your life. Meditate on it. And while you're doing it, give Jesus some air time in your life too. Give Jesus a little air time in your life. As that begins to happen, I'm just going to leave you with a few points that the parable has left me with. So maybe that will help a little bit. First, point number one. Let Jesus out of his cage. Let Jesus out of the cage. Unlock the door. Let Jesus wander around a bit in your life. Let Jesus begin to say things to you that you're actually listening to that you don't want to hear. Not because you couldn't handle it if certain people said it to you, but because at some point a long time ago you decided that Jesus couldn't, wouldn't, or shouldn't say those kinds of things. But what if, what if Jesus isn't all that you suspect him to be? What if Jesus is actually real and alive? What if Jesus isn't just a set of fixed doctrinal bullet points, but is instead more like a wide-eyed old western gunslinger? Now that may make us a little bit uncomfortable, and there's some irony in that as well. Not a bullet point. A gunslinger. Secondly, Jesus can use scoundrels. He salvages them with his salvation, sanctifying them, no, but not all at once. 
And all the while, all the while they're growing and being sanctified, he's using them still. And this makes us uncomfortable sometimes. It makes us uncomfortable until we remember that we are all scoundrels in our own right. Seemingly unusable instruments in the work of God's holiness, who God somehow uses anyway. I don't know about you, but I've been blessed in my life often by uh, foul-mouthed, questionably acting characters who have insanely big hearts. And sometimes when we meet people like this, we, we'll say to other people, oh, they're, they're kind of a little bit crazy, but they've got a big heart, right? But usually it's not just because they've got a big heart deep down. No, the reason these people bless me and sometimes bless you is because they seem to wear everything, their sin and their salvation, on their sleeves. I like these people. Some of you know these people. Some of you are these people. And remember, Jesus didn't just use these kinds of people. He loved them. Now, how did he love them? Why did he love Well, Jesus loves everyone. But Jesus didn't just love them. If we look at his story, he also liked them. Why? Why? Did he use them in spite of the kind of people they were? No, he hung out with them. He chose them. Why? Maybe because they were more honest. Maybe because they were more authentic. Maybe because the stuff Jesus needed to get to in them, the bad and the good, was already sitting closer to the surface. Or maybe because Jesus also liked to laugh too. I'm not sure. Finally, and I really do think this is the point of the parable, we are all stewards. And I think Jesus is trying to tell us something here about how we all ought to engage in the work of stewardship. Now, when we talk about stewardship at church, it kind of comes with a certain kind of punch, and we, we're often talking about money, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's important. It was important to Jesus, and it was important to Jesus because Jesus believed it was important for us. And this is the key here. Good stewardship is not about what God wants from us, but about what God wants for us. And there's a difference. And this has to do with what we do with what Jesus calls, and this is another way to translate wealth in our text, mammon. Mammon is our stuff. Everything that God gives us in our life to govern. And Jesus says, whoever is faithful in little will be faithful in much, and whoever is dishonest in little will be dishonest with much. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And so I wonder, what if we used all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and creativity in service to God and God's kingdom instead of in service to our own ever-growing kingdom of mammon in this world. Our energies, our talents, our resources, our world, our family, our loved ones, we're stewards of all of it. It doesn't belong to us, but we are stewards of all of it. It's God's. 
But we've been given authority, like the man in the story, we have agency over what happens with it. And God doesn't want us to take that lightly. Doesn't want us to squander what we've been given, but to manage it well, to offer it generously as well. To offer it not only generously, but to offer it strategically and creatively and shrewdly. So they're living with a sense of immediacy when it comes to our call to manage the growing of God's kingdom. That we're constantly conniving. Conniving as to how we can cultivate that kingdom as if our lives and our livelihoods depended on it. So what if, what if all of us and each of us were to channel every ounce of shrewdness we could muster to serve not ourselves and not our mammon, but our Christ and everyone Christ loves in this world, which means everyone. So that every day, as much as it depends upon us, God's kingdom might come and God's will might be done in the lives of the least, the last, and the lost. You know, I think if we could lean into that, we'd be living into the confounding genius of this provocative parable. Let's pray for God to help us with that. Oh God, your spirit is around us and within us and among us. So many things about following you in this world and being like you in this world are confusing and confounding. But we pray now by the power of your Spirit that is among us and within us and around us. You would help us to give everything we can muster and you would make that mustering into something that is good and beautiful for you and your kingdom in this world. So that everyone will know and receive and embrace your confounding and unending love. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.